recognizes the congressman from California, Dr. Barra, for five minutes. Thank You're you. listening to World Affairs. I'm Ray Suarez. What I saw when we were in Ukraine as we met with their senior leaders and President Zelensky was a country that has resolve. This past January, Dr. Ami Barra was in Kyiv. He was part of a bipartisan delegation that met with NATO and the EU to discuss the buildup of Russian troops along Ukraine's border. They reminded us that they've been at war with Russia for the last eight years. You know, when I went out on the streets with my colleagues and we talked to ordinary Ukrainian citizens, there's a resolve. They have no intention of living under Soviet rule. They've tasted freedom. When Dr. Barrow was first elected to represent California's 7th Congressional District in 2012, he was a bit of an outsider. The former physician and professor was one of only two Indian Americans serving in Congress. But 10 years later, he's helping steer U.S. diplomacy as chair of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and nonproliferation. On February 18th, I hosted a conversation with Congressman Ami Berra about countering threats from Russia and China. At the time, a diplomatic option to address the Ukraine crisis was still on the table. But as I record this introduction, now, Russian troops are conducting a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, including the capital, Kyiv. The live stream event was part of the Global Speakers Series, a program presented by World Affairs and the Pacific Council on International Policy. We bring you the highlights of my conversation with Representative Ami Berra. Congressman, there's so much to talk about. Let's jump right in with Ukraine. You've recently visited with a bipartisan congressional delegation. As news pours out of Washington, out of Moscow, out of Kyiv and European capitals, what's the American interest here? President Biden's been even more publicly assertive than Ukraine's European neighbors about keeping Russia out of Ukraine's domestic affairs keeping Moscow from compromising Ukraine's sovereignty. What's in it for the U.S.? Here's why it matters to us in the United States. We're the world's oldest democracy. We value the rights of citizens to choose their path forward. When I was in Ukraine talking to this young democracy, the people there are very equivocal. They have no interest in living under Russian rule. They've tasted freedom, particularly the young people, and they're going to fight for those freedoms. And they're right to choose their path forward and the right to choose their own government. We've got to stand together as democracies, as the world's oldest democracy, standing with this young democracy. That's what this is about. We don't know what the 21st century is going to look like. You've seen autocratic rulers like Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and others. It's not a given that the democratic values that we hold so dear will rule the 21st century. And I think this is a first real test of what those values are going to be. A lot of the world's big names made a point of staying away from Beijing during the Winter Olympics. One exception was, who else? Vladimir Putin. Russia is a country that has little to offer the world except raw materials. China has bigger economic ambitions and much more advanced economic relations with countries lining up on both sides of the arguments over Ukraine. Is the developing anti-American coalition kind of hitting a bump in the road over Ukraine? When you take a look at China, will you be watching China closely? 
to see what its posture is, whether they're ready to go all the way down the line with President Putin. You know, it's interesting. China's always going to act in China's interest. And at the end of the day, the Russians and the Chinese in terms of interest don't necessarily line up. You know, Russia is a much more European facing nation. That said, we do pay attention to um, how China is watching Ukraine um, unfold. That's why I think the sanctions are hugely important. If we want strategic deterrence to deter China from having thoughts about invading Taiwan, this is going to be very important in terms of sending a message to China that it's not a good idea. And this anti-American coalition of Russia and China, what also is happening is you're putting together a coalition of like-minded countries. Had you asked me a couple of months ago if the United States and Europe would be speaking with one voice, I'd say, you know, that hasn't happened in a long time. But lo and behold, we're all in this together. And I think that's a miscalculation that Vladimir Putin has made. I think he thought he could divide us and you know, that we wouldn't be in this together. But it is remarkable that the United States and the European Union and NATO, even some of the Asian democratic countries like Japan, were all speaking with one voice here saying, don't do this, not in the 21st century. You've been a sponsor, a spearhead in the House of Representatives of legislation the Beijing government calls anti-China says fires up a new Cold War. What's in the America Competes Act? It's an act that is about investing in the United States of America. The best way for us to compete with China is to invest in ourselves. We invented the semiconductor industry, but we've, over the decades, have lost a lot of that. Let's bring that back. That's one way we can address supply chain issues. Another way that we can compete with the rest of the world is Let's invest in research and, and development in our academic institutions, in job training, workforce training. China is very afraid of America investing in itself and doing what we do best. And that's why they see this as an anti-China bill. I see this as a pro-American bill. Since you talk about supply chains, uh, I mean, chips are a great example. American Assembly lines were stilled by the lack of chips from Asia. But there is a big price differential. Who makes up that difference between a Texas or Utah or California-made chip and one from Malaysia? Well, so it may get passed on a little bit to the consumers, but these are high-quality jobs. Bringing those jobs back here are also a national security interest. We're also paying the price through inflation right now. And part of those inflationary pressures are the issues with supply chains and, and the ability to get chips. So if we want to win the 21st century, we're going to have to make those investments in ourselves and not just today's chips, but the next generation of chips, artificial intelligence, et cetera. One thing about cutting edge modern factories, when you walk into them, they're incredibly clean. They're quieter than old factories used to be but they're also kind of empty. If you put in a big investment in a, a place to make, for instance, semiconductors, one feature of the modern factory is it's not labor intense. Is it really right to talk about job creation when it comes to that kind of investment? You know, it is. There's still a lot of folks that have to build the machines that build the semiconductors. We still hold a, a dramatic lead over China in the machines that make the semiconductors. And semiconductors are in everything that we use every day. So having an adequate supply of that, as you touched on, 
the assembly lines are quiet right now. Well, that'll put a lot of people to work. Having robust supply chains that are back here in the United States or near the United States, again, allows us to diversify and not be so reliant on a country like China that may shut down supply chains if, in fact, tensions get higher. There's often caution in dealing with China and its growing commercial footprint in the rest of the world. It also holds extensive American debt. It's part of vital supply links for consumer goods and, as we've been talking about, components in American products. But often in these conversations, there's less often American muscle flexing. We're an essential marketplace for Chinese goods, too. Does the U.S. underplay its hand, underestimate its strength in its business relations with China? You know, I think that's changing. When I first came to Congress a decade ago, I think a lot of us viewed China as you know, this growing economic power, but also growing middle class, growing entrepreneurial class. And you know, much as Japan in the, the 70s and 80s, we thought as China's middle class grew, you'd see more democratic open markets. Obviously, Xi Jinping and Beijing are taking the People's Republic of China in a very different direction. We don't have to guess the direction that Xi Jinping wants to take China because he's pretty much articulated that. At this juncture, it's becoming less of a free society. The human rights issues in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, you know, what you're seeing in terms of what's happening in Hong Kong, it's a very different China than many of us imagined a decade ago. And I don't often say positive things about the Trump administration. Many of his China policies they were the right questions to be asking. Maybe the methods and tools that he used were not the right tools that, that I would have thought, thought we'd use. But you haven't seen the Biden administration roll those policies back. And the relationship and how Congress feels about China in a bipartisan way, I would love to um, ratchet down the rhetoric and find a way to improve our relations. But right now, that just doesn't seem the case. Well, you mentioned Hong Kong. You mentioned the Uyghurs. I'll throw Taiwan into the hopper as well. It's a much more assertive China these days. If you want to lower the temperature, as you just mentioned, what does that look like? What does that consist of? Does the United States have the interest, the footprint, the muscle, the juice to be a counterweight in those particular moves? Or has that ship kind of sailed? I mean, once Hong Kong was turned over, even if you had assurances about a 50-year transition, one country, two systems, and all that. If China chooses simply to absorb Hong Kong, what can the United States say about it? You know, Hong Kong's a little bit different than Taiwan. Taiwan's been an autonomous place. The people of Taiwan have enjoyed an experience and chosen to live uh, by democratic values, thriving economy. I think what China is doing is changing the calculus. They'll say, well, it's the United States and we're reacting to the United States. That's absolutely not true. We haven't changed our one China policy, but the Taiwan Relations Act clearly states that you know, we will stand with the people of Taiwan and allow them to choose their path forward. To your question, I don't think this is just the United States versus China, because what you're seeing are coalitions coming together, the Quad Coalition, which is the United States, Japan, Australia and India, that's been elevated to the leader's level and taken on a whole new direction. Part of that is because of China's coercion of Australia, the retaliatory 
measures they took when Australia asked about COVID origins. Some of the tensions on India's northern border has made India very leery of China. And then the tensions around Taiwan, Japan's very close in proximity. So I think China's aggressive nature is actually pushing the Western world, the democratic world, much closer together. Even when I've traveled around Southeast Asia, the Southeast Asian nations are not going to choose the United States or China, but they're very concerned with how China uses its economy in a very coercive way. Does this make the withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership look even more important as a gesture of the United States? If the U.S. was in that grouping, would we be having a different conversation right now? You know, as a Democrat who supported the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and there weren't a lot of us, it really was a tool, not just of opening up markets, but it was a geopolitical tool to set the norms and the rules for trading in the Indo-Pacific region. Yes, I think it was a big mistake for us not to get that across the finish line. At this point, it's a little bit harder for us to get back in based on just the politics that changed 2016 going forward. But it's not impossible. Think about what we did with the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. That was negotiated. Everyone was at the table. And it passed with 196 Democrats in the House and 193 Republicans. Strong bipartisan vote. So it is possible. The Indo-Pacific region is the world's largest economic bloc. And it'd be a shame if China was setting the rules. We ought to set the rules with countries that value open markets, value the rule of law, and they want us back. You mentioned the Uyghurs. The treatment by China of its Muslim majority in the Northwest is increasingly referred to as a genocide. And even if the Beijing government does not resort to large-scale killing, which is often a feature of genocide, at the very least, it appears to be pressing forced assimilation backed by the muscle of state power. You represent a state in the Congress that's been at the forefront of tightening ties with China. What's the political, moral, and economic path forward for a country that says it's concerned about what's happening in Xinjiang, but in real life has these interests, these other interests that move in parallel? Well, and you've seen us pass legislation to address the Uyghur issue. We recognize that there are a lot of U.S. companies that have supply chains throughout China, but if we want to be moral leaders, we have to stand firm here and make statements and point things out. Part of the diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, while small, really sent a message to say, hey, we can't participate in this when you see that type of human rights strategy. You're seeing the Europeans again stand with us. You're starting to hear the Australians speak out about what's happening to the Uyghurs. You're seeing the Japanese start talking about it. What I'd love to see is the Muslim-majority countries speaking with a bigger voice here. And that's something we've tried to get them to do. It's a little bit of a surprise, isn't it? I mean, this is overt religious discrimination, kind of, I don't know if there's a term for it, but basically the sort of Han muscle uh, of China's ethnic majority erasing Uyghur particularity, its, its separateness as a culture. You would have thought you would have heard uh, more from the Muslim-majority states around the world. Yeah, I mean, they've been um, absent here, and we really have made the point to the Muslim-majority world that they need to speak out because 
this really is an attack on fellow Muslims that you know practice the same religion, have some of the same culture. So I would hope at some point, if it's not the governments, that the people in these countries would speak out. You're a first-generation American, and at the same time, part of a very old American story, going back to the 19th century, when members of Congress with family ties to other parts of the world were sought out by the whole community in the United States as a point person, as a go-to guy for those issues involving the old country. A hundred years ago, it might have been Irish-American members or Italian-American members in later decades, Eastern European Jews. For you, the son of immigrants from Gujarat in India, is it a chosen role, one that you happily embrace, or one that just circumstances are going to force on you anyway? You're one of the Indian congressmen, so you're just going to get a lot of communication from Indians in the diaspora in the United States who don't live in a district with an Indian congressman. Well, when I first came to Congress as a physician, you know, healthcare was the area that I thought I'd be making my biggest mark. But now as the chairman of the subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and nonproliferation, the Indian subcontinent, South Asia, is all part of my jurisdiction. So there's an expectation from that side of it as a senior member on the Foreign Affairs Committee. But now as a longing-serving South Asian member of Congress, certainly uh, many aspects of the community will, will raise issues with what's happening in India, what's happening in South Asia. We certainly are looking for ways to reduce tensions between India and Pakistan. And then Afghanistan's part of my region as well, and that's taken up a, a lot of our time as we try to keep this country from the massive humanitarian crisis that we're seeing unfolding, but we also don't want this to be a total failed state that just evolves into chaos. Well, now you've got company. You mentioned you're the longest serving, but there's uh, Pramilia Jayapal, uh, Raja Krishnamurti, Ro Khanna, others. It's kind of a kick running in, into them in the hallway. I mean, you must, I don't know, maybe have like a secret high sign or a group handshake, but it, it must be kind of fun. No, it's a, a thrill. And again, I never consider myself a role model, but when I first got here in 2013, I was the only Indian American. And you know, in one of my early statements to the community, it's like, you know, over this next decade, let's get to five. Well, it took us four years to get to five members because you also left out at that time, Senator Kamala Harris, whose mother is from India, um, now Vice President Harris. So there's a lot that the community can be proud of and take pride in. The next generation, so my daughter and the, the generations that have been born here, they should absolutely get involved in politics, have a seat at the table, you know, take the values that we were raised with and give back to this country that's given you know, generations so much. And again, what I love about the United States is it's this fabric of various cultures, religions, traditions, ethnicities, all woven together. It makes us unique in the world. We're not this homogeneous population with this tapestry of all these things, and somehow it works. During your time in Congress, you've seen the tone and the intensity of the conversations around immigration change a lot. There's no more of that, we are the world, melting pot, ingatherer of nations conversation as much as a kind of caution, fear of the outside world, some real questions, even some members of the other caucus proposing scrapping birthright citizenship 
the conversation has changed enormously. You know, it, it has, but I also think it weakens us as a nation. Again, I think our strength is that you have one generation of immigrants after another. Think about it. The South Asian, Indian American community is still relatively young. It's about one, one and a half generations old. It's now the most affluent community in the United States. A lot of the, the entrepreneurs, a lot of the doctors and lawyers and, and others, that's the opportunity that the United States has given us. But we're also, as an immigrant community, giving back to the United States. If we think about the inflationary pressures that we're seeing right now, part of that is we don't have that workforce that's immigrating to the United States that's contributing to our economy. You've got to have that workforce. And if you think about my parents who came here in the 1950s to get their education, generations of immigrants have come to our universities to get their undergraduate, graduate degrees. We ought to want them to stay here and contribute to our economy, build their companies here. Those are all things that we can fix. And we came pretty close in my first term in Congress. We ought to sit down, Democrats and Republicans, and try to fix this. We need the workforce to work on our farms and construction. We just passed this big infrastructure bill. We're gonna need a ton of workers to do that work, but we also need the high-skilled immigrants as well. And I think we can do this and put it together. The United States unquestionably benefited economically from the fact that kids wanted to go to college or university here from all over the world for decades and many of them stayed when they were done. In the post 9-11 world, but then intensifying during the Trump administration, we threw out the unwelcome mat. And now those kids are either going somewhere else, often to Canada or Britain, but increasingly also to Germany and France. And they are, when they do come, in ways overt and covert, told they're not welcome to stay after they get their sheepskin. What can you do to change that? Again, we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we're having those kids come here and go to our universities, get their graduate degrees, and not allowing them to stay here and contribute to our community and, and our world. Probably the best foreign policy tool we had in the 60s, 70s, and 80s were the foreign exchange students that would come here. Because you know, when I travel the world and talk to leaders around the world, Many of them got their education in the United States, and then they went back to their home countries. So they have fond memories of the people of the United States. They may not always like our government policy, but they all want to send their kids to our universities to get educated. It is one of the best things we have, this fantastic system of higher education. I've also been you know, working with the University of California system because one of the best brands in the world, how do we take our education system and open it up to the rest of the world through remote learning. You know, there's lots of things that we could be doing because, again, it exposes the world to who we are as a people. And it is a fantastic diplomatic tool. When people from outside the United States want to talk to uh, the politicians who are helping to make policy in South Asia, are you sought out? by people in India, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan? Do you get to be a go-between in this critical part of the world? Does that committee assignment give you, in effect, a catbird seat for a part of the world that's very, very much under scrutiny right now? You know, it really does. And you don't realize that title chairman means uh, quite a bit. And 
having that title on a constant basis, if you looked at my calendar, you're meeting with dignitaries that are coming to the United States, fellow parliamentarians from you know, the Asia Pacific region, meeting with the ambassadors, and then the importance of traveling and representing the United States in this region is hugely important. Because again, I do think, you know, as President Obama said, but also President Biden said, the Indo-Pacific is going to be the most vibrant, potentially challenging region, depending on what happens in the, the U.S.-China competition. But it is a place that we are going to have to pay attention to in the 21st century, that trans-Pacific relationship. Uh, you aren't one of those members who in the past has just cruised to a 10, 20, or 30-point victory, as many of your members of the House do from both parties because of the way districts are drawn. Your district has remained very competitive. How has that shaped your time as a member of Congress? How has that changed the assignment of being a member of Congress for you? You know, I love my district. It's a, a very purple district, so evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. What it does is it forces you to talk to everyone and understand the perspective of both parties. I tend to try to represent my constituents to the best of my ability. I actually think my training as a physician helps make me a better member of Congress because we're trained to listen. We're trained to ask questions. But at the end of the day, you have to make decisions. And you know, that's what I hope in my time in Congress, that we could actually rebuild trust in the institution. And the way we could do that is by building more bipartisan and you know, negotiated policies. I think the infrastructure bill that we passed, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, is hugely important because, again, that's one that China probably isn't thrilled about. But what we're doing is we're going to rebuild the United States and put us in a place where we can compete in the 21st century. And that's good for red states. That's good for blue states. That's good for the United States. One thing members of both parties agreed on is their dismay at the way the United States got out of Afghanistan last year. You've supported a call to audit the SIV program and open more paths for immigration for Afghan allies in the United States. The White House made headlines in recent days by confiscating $7 billion from the Afghan National Bank, which has been redistributed to families who've been hurt in the 9-11 attacks. What's the best way forward both to make good for families that were heavily affected by the terrorist attacks at the turn of the century and for the needs of the people of Afghanistan today? I think what we're seeing in Afghanistan right now with massive starvation is a massive humanitarian crisis. There's no easy way out of this. The Afghan reserves were frozen. It'd be very difficult politically to say, okay, we're going to give that to the Taliban which is the only government in Afghanistan right now, because we don't actually trust that it would get to the people. I've talked to the UN ambassador, our UN ambassador, say, is there a way to distribute this through the United Nations and get it directly to the NGOs, the folks on the ground, the doctors, the teachers, folks that are not being paid right now? And how do we help keep Afghanistan from being a totally failed state? Because if that happens, and you know, when I talk to countries in the region, and I was in Islamabad a few months ago. What they said, matter of factly, is you may not like the Taliban, but they don't have any international ambitions. Their focus is on Afghanistan. But if the Taliban fail and a group like ISIS or other terrorist groups come in, 
Pakistan will feel it first, but the United States will definitely feel it at some point. And there's some truth to that. So how do we help support the people of Afghanistan? Many who stood by our side for 20 years create some sort of functioning government and prevent a humanitarian crisis in a totally failed state. You're listening to World Affairs. I'm Ray Suarez. If you missed any part of this episode or want to catch up on other international stories, you can download our podcast. Just search for World Affairs, that's one word, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to my conversation with Representative Ami Berra of California. It was a live stream event recorded February 18th. Next, we hear some questions from the live stream viewers. Steve asks, didn't France break ranks? Is there a united Europe when it comes to Ukraine? President Macron certainly has spoken in slightly different tones. I think part of that is there's a French election coming up. But at the end of the day, the French are going to be with us as the Germans are going to be with us and all of NATO. Anthony asks, can the U.S. supply enough liquefied natural gas to Europe for the near term to make up for that gap if Russian gas stops flowing west? It would be difficult to make up all of the energy supplies to Europe. That's why we're having conversations with Qatar, with other states, as well as you know, looking at our own exports uh, of natural gas. That said, we're facing pretty high gas prices here in the United States. So I think there's a balance understanding the impact of elevated gas prices and natural gas prices are having on the domestic population here in the U.S. You should know, listeners, that before this crisis even started, the United States was the single largest supplier of liquefied natural gas to Europe. There are guarantees, some assurances being made that the United States will pick up the volume of shipments, but whether it can make up entirely for, for Russian natural gas, that remains to be seen. A lot of questions on East Asia. Tana asks, does the U.S. have anything to learn from China's expanding middle class and increased rates of home ownership? Again, a decade ago, I would have thought the expanding middle class, the increased home ownership would all lead to market reforms, a, a more open society. It's gone in the, the opposite direction. I think it's hard to shut people down once they've experienced some of the freedoms that they had a decade ago, some of the economic freedoms that they had. So it's not a given how China will, will move forward. It is a given. Again, we know what Xi Jinping has stated in his own words. It is becoming a very much more authoritarian, big brother type of society. Will the Chinese middle class, the Chinese entrepreneurial class stand for that, or will there be pushback and revolt? Again, it's not a given what happens. Boy, but I'll tell you, they're making a pretty good go of it. Every country in the world that's become significantly richer has also in time become significantly freer. And China is trying to pull off something that's never been done before, a rich, unfree country. It's kind of remarkable. Yeah. And I, again, if you think about what they've done to some of their most entrepreneurial companies and some of the, the biggest entrepreneurs, they've shut them down. I don't think that's a recipe for innovation, a recipe for a vibrant economy. 
contrast that with the United States, actually contrast that with what we do in California. Yeah, we welcome that innovative spirit. We welcome folks to take chances. And I think that's why we've been such a strong economy over the years, such an innovative economy. And again, you mentioned the American Competes Act. That is all about continuing to build that innovation and vibrant, diverse economy. One of our attendees asks, how do you assess the current situation in North Korea? It continues testing missiles and shows no interest in engaging with the U.S. or South Korea. How do you think the Biden administration should try more to engage with North Korea? Yeah, so we've seen this pattern out of North Korea over decades. When they're ignored, they start to do their saber-rattling, missile testing, etc. A lot of the focus has been on China and elsewhere in the Asia-Pacific region, and now on Russia. I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing the saber-rattling coming out of North Korea. I'm open to, to dialogue. Again, as Secretary Blinken has said, the door's open. But North Korea has to come in with some real concessions. And I was supportive of the prior administration having the dialogue, but we never actually got anything concrete out of North Korea. So I think if we do engage in dialogue to find peace on the peninsula, and ultimately the goal still is a nuclear-free peninsula, that may take time, but are there first steps that we could take to build some trust? Does frostier relations with China mean that finding a way forward in North Korea is just going to, by definition, be tougher because China offers a security umbrella to North Korea? I think it becomes harder without China at the table. That said, again, how do we reduce tensions, reduce these missile tests and saber rattling? And I think that starts with probably bilateral talks. You know, one of the good things that has come out early in the Biden administration is rebuilding or at least getting the Japan-Korea relationship to a better place because we do have to have a strong trilateral alliance with the United States, Japan, and Korea, and that'll strengthen our hand in negotiations with the North. Stephen wants to know, how far will the U.S. go to protect Taiwan from China? And I'll bet he's not the only person asking that question. You know, that's a, a, a big question. Right now, I think what we're trying to do is work with the people of Taiwan, the government in Taiwan, to strengthen their abilities to be a self-deterrent force. We also have talked about biting sanctions, putting together coalitions. The Europeans are with us when it comes to Taiwan. Japan's with us when it comes to Taiwan. The hope here, again, much as the hope in Ukraine is not to have a kinetic war. Again, we've not changed our one China policy, but we hold this value as the world's oldest democracy that people should be able to choose their path forward. And again, Taiwan, the people of Taiwan have chosen a democratic path forward. Why change the status quo? The status quo has been good and prosperous and peaceful for the people of Taiwan, but also for the people of China. Back to Afghanistan, William asks, Considering the Taliban's prior support of international terrorism and Pakistan's ongoing turning a blind eye to terrorists, isn't it naive to believe that the Taliban will remain solely focused on internal matters, as you mentioned before? Yeah, so it was al-Qaeda that the Taliban gave refuge to. So we have to stay vigilant to make sure, and I, I don't want anyone to 
believe that I think the Taliban are good and a great government. I'd like to see a coalition government emerge in Afghanistan. The gains we made in rights for women and girls, that's still very important to us. And part of any negotiation and in, in providing support or releasing these reserves has to be protecting the rights of women and girls to get their education, to move forward. It's a reasonable question. I do worry, though, if Afghanistan is a totally failed state that's at constant civil war, that you will see elements like ISIS and others that do have more external ambitions start to rise. I've got my issues with Pakistan as well, and we raise those directly with them. But again, the last thing we want to see is Pakistan as a failed state because they've got lots of nuclear weapons there. And there are terrorist elements within Pakistan that are trying to make it a failed state. Now, again, <laughs> difficult circumstances. The United States spent countless billions of dollars trying to build a new Afghanistan in communications, in commerce, in banking, in education, in the agricultural productive base of the country, in ways large and small across two decades. And the Taliban spent much of their day, every day, wrecking it, smashing it, killing the people who cooperated with us, killing the people who were involved in those enterprises that were being set up by extension workers from the United States across some of the tensest communities in Afghanistan. Now, they're in charge. They got what they wanted. They're in charge. And in the United States, there are some interesting arguments about what responsibility, what remaining obligation Americans have to a place where they spent 20 years, but now that they've left, whether there's still an ongoing obligation because of the suffering that's going on there. How would you convince a rank-and-file American to not just wash their hands of the place and leave them to their fate? Well, I'd start with, we have an obligation to the Afghani people that work side by side with our troops, with our aid workers and development workers. I don't think there's much argument in Congress that we ought to do right by those folks that supported our, our mission there. And that's part of the reason why we are asking for this audit of the SIV program, why we're continuing to work to get folks out of Afghanistan, particularly, again, those that helped us. That might be targets of the Taliban. My community of Sacramento County, we've got the largest Afghan refugee population in the country, and it's hugely important to a lot of the people that live there. I think our obligations to the country of Afghanistan, now that the Taliban are in charge, are working with the other countries in the region to try to keep some semblance of a, a government and state there. I'd love to see continued negotiations take place to see a coalition government form. I don't know if that can happen. I'm not a fan of how the Taliban are governing right now. It's easier to fight than it is to run a country. And the worry here, though, is that humanitarian crisis and a totally failed state. Gregory has a two-part question. In 2020, Putin announced openly a new first-strike policy for the use of nuclear weapons if a conventional non-nuclear attack on Russia threatened the survival of the country. Knowing that the mother of all sanctions is aimed to deliver a financial death blow to Russia, has anyone in Washington considered or debated the potential consequence 
of the security of our homeland if we try to bring down the Russian state with these extreme conventional measures? Is it in America's best security interests to fall on a sword for NATO's open-door policy for Ukraine, a policy that could easily be negotiated to a policy of by invitation only, a diplomatic compromise for assuring Ukraine's sovereignty, implementing the Minsk Accords, and creating an off-ramp to prevent any further escalation there right now? You know, we, we have, and, and certainly behind the scenes, you know, I think folks are having those conversations. You've heard the, the president, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, and others say, you know, we're open to addressing Russia's security concerns. I think there's an openness that, again, NATO countries have to invite a new country to enter into NATO. So there's got to be unanimity there. If that's off the table, if that's the path to avoiding what would be a brutal war in Ukraine, I think certainly we're open to that. I don't think we're talking or thinking that Russia, in the face of sanctions, would do any kind of nuclear strike or anything like that. But we do have to very well be concerned with their cyber capabilities. Certainly, we're seeing cyber attacks in Ukraine. Would Russia, in retaliation to economic sanctions, do cyber attacks? We saw what happened with the Colonial Pipeline you know, last year. Would things like that shut down critical U.S. infrastructure? That's very much a realm of possibility. And again, I think we have to take that very seriously and also make sure we've got the cyber capabilities to retaliate in a proportional way. Well, we haven't. There's been no uh, response in kind to some of these very provocative and potentially very dangerous Russian moves. It almost seems like the United States doesn't want to open that can of worms, which may be exactly the way to go. I don't know. But should Vladimir Putin worry when he puts his head on the pillow at night that American computer engineers could totally gum up his banking system, his energy system, the sort of digital infrastructure of the country, which is much more fragile and smaller than that in the United States. He very well should um, stay awake at night thinking about that, thinking about our cyber capabilities, our ability to respond in kind. I think part of the reason why you're seeing what's happening now is the somewhat tepid response that the United States and Europe had towards the invasion in Crimea in 2014 and the occupation in the Donbas territory in eastern Ukraine, had we responded more strongly in 2014, maybe we wouldn't find ourselves in this situation. I do think that's some of the lessons that President Biden and his national security team have taken from 2014. And I think that is why you saw the very swift and unified response to today's threat. Well, we're just about out of time, Congressman. One more question before we wrap up. We are looking forward to November and a midterm election. Your colleagues on the other side of the aisle are talking about a historic Democratic bloodbath. Democrats are complaining about them not leveraging their accomplishments well enough or bragging about what they've been doing. In the months to come, what's the election going to be about? What's the battleground as these two huge parties get ready to do battle in advance of November? It really is going to be about how the American people are feeling at this point in time in November. 
you know, right now, inflationary pressures are putting a lot of strain on families. The fact that we're in the going into the third year of this pandemic, folks want to get their lives back. They want to get back on their feet. They want to have their kids in school. This is going to be about bread and butter issues, as every election is going to be about. Gas prices above $5, you know, that probably hurts Democrats. Gas prices coming down, inflation coming down, pandemic over, a lot of us feeling like we're returning to normal life. That probably helps us. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. Joining us from Capitol Hill, Representative Ami Berra of California. Great. Thank you. Be well. <laughs>